Welcome to the Sugar Hill Church Podcast. We hope and pray this message challenges and inspires you to live out God's truth in your life. Uh, we're in this series uh, called Simple, and it's a, a little letter that uh, Paul, who uh, wrote a lot of the New Testament, he writes this letter to a church in a place called Colossae. And this church is kind of like us. They they, they want to do right. They're just having a hard time figuring out what to do. And so Paul writes this letter, and we're in this four-week series because this little book has this simple perspective on life, how, how we don't complicate life. And so in the second chapter, we find a couple of really cool themes about how our lives should be, can be, and, and would be simplified if we were to simply choose to follow these instructions. Now, here at this church, one of the things we say at Sugar Hill is we believe the Bible's a big deal. Now, you're going to learn today why we think that's a, a, such a big deal. We believe the Bible's a big deal because it gives us this incredible direction in life. So from Genesis to maps, we believe there's a rhyme and a reason for which this exists. Now, let let me just give you a couple of thoughts here. Let me read these qualities to you. See if you think these would be the kind of qualities you'd want in a mate, in a friend, in an employer, in an employee, et cetera, et cetera, right? Strong, humble, trustworthy, honest, gentle, pure, faithful, generous, reliable, peaceable, joyful, loving. I mean, pretty good start, right? I mean, we'd all agree that I I want that person around me. I want to be that person. Well, uh, I believe Paul gives us the instruction that we can have all that. As a matter of fact, I'd be willing to say many of you in this room have it, you just don't know it. Now, I'm one of those people that um, when I get ready to teach something, I try to figure out what's the application all week long. And so all week long, I've kind of kept record of how many times that I immediately think something bad about somebody. Okay, now, isn't this awful? I mean... Based on my notes, your pastor is a despicable human being, okay? I mean, how many of you, the first time you hear somebody say something or watch them do something, your first thought is jerk? I mean, anybody that way? How many of you, the first time you see somebody, your first thought is, oh, that's just so sweet? Anybody in that category? Great, good good for you, liars. Now, um... Paul says, that was the despicable part of me. Um, Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, in him, speaking of Jesus, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. Now, remember, when, when God created man and woman, what did he do? He created them in his image, right? I mean, what did he say? Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. He saw that man was alone. That's not good. So he made woman. And, you know, it was really that simple. But he made them in our image. So all those qualities that I spoke about a minute ago, those would be qualities that would be exemplified in God. Wouldn't we want those to be exemplified in our life? And what Paul is saying to us that in Christ, all those things exist, all right? But we have to take a look at three quick lessons here and and grasp what he's really trying to say. First, let's take a look at what he's saying that to be in Christ, what does that mean to us legally? All right, now I gave you the story last week of let's, let's get the picture. I'll tell you the story again. You walk into the courtroom and the judge is on the big bench and he says guilty. And you know it, you're guilty. You're just as guilty as sin and you're guilty in sin. And he says death chamber and away you go and they get ready to take you off. And about that time, the judge's son walks into the courtroom and says, wait a minute, I love them. 
I tell you what, I'll take their place. And the father, the, the judge, is heartbroken, but he lets his son be carried off to the gas chamber to die, all right? And, and, and watching that happen, you realize, wait a minute, he just did what I deserve. How could this be? And then after they've carried the son away for death, the judge comes off the bench, walks around, opens his arms up and wraps you up. And he says, listen, I let my son just go die so that you could live, but there's more. More, I want to adopt you into my family so that we can sit at the same table together for all eternity. And by the way, my boy's coming back. Just wait. Legally, what happened was he reconciled our sin. So what Paul says, man, don't miss this. In Jesus, legally, he's fixed it. Secondly, he says, you ought to have this relational change. There's something that ought to happen in our life. We go from being condemned slaves to being adopted children. Now, that's a totally different perspective, isn't it? If you wake up every morning as a slave, what do you think? Here we go again. If you wake up every morning, you think, man, life stinks. I mean, it, it basically... It, what you're looking for in life, you're going to have. And what he's saying is everything in all relationships in life ought to change. You went from being, being cast out to being brought in. You went from being alone to being with family. You went from being abused to being cured. You went from being alone to being cared for. I mean, everything you could imagine, relationally, our whole world changed. You know what I've noticed? When we are right relationally with God, we get right relation with other people. When I find somebody at war with most people, I usually find somebody at war with God. And so, and so he's saying we ought to be changed legally. We ought to get that. We're changed relationally. We ought to get that. But then he says, and I think it's the most important things, we ought to be changed inherently. Our DNA ought to change. The nature of how we act ought to change based on this. In him, in Jesus, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. And so you look at that and you say, this is exactly what God does in our lives. He gives us a, a new heart. He gives us a new start. As a result, we've legally been set aside and, and we've been saved from what we deserved. And he's given us this reconciliation. He's given us a new life. Relationally, we're right with God because he said, hey, listen, it's free for you. All you have to do is take it. And then when it happens, we become changed, the DNA, the natural part of our life, we begin to change from the inside out. But it's a little bit like the lady on the Irish coast who had they just gotten power to this little hamlet years ago, and she was the first house to get electricity into her home. And she got that electricity, and they hooked it all up for her. And for the first three months, literally, she would turn on the power outside of her home right at dusk so she could light candles and then would turn it off. She did this night after night after night after night. Finally, the power company came to her and said, ma'am, one of the reasons we picked you is that everybody could see that your light would be shining. Why aren't you using the power? She said, well, I was afraid to go out. You see, this way most of us create our relationship with God. We flip a switch one time where we have this kind of emotional experience with God and we think, okay, he's good for me then, but come on, when Tuesday come and life stinks, now what? When Thursday comes and the boss is an idiot, now what? When Friday comes and my wife and I are at odds, now what? When Saturday night comes and my kid's been locked up in jail, now what? You say, well, wait a minute. God flipped a switch on and he never turned it off. You did. We did. I did. And we're like this lady and we forget, wait a minute. He's got a power switch he flips on and he never turns off in his fullness 
We have all of Jesus. It never turns off. We get the whole thing. Inherently, our DNA changes and we see life through a different lens. Paul writes another letter to a church and he calls it the book of Galatians. And and in chapter 2, verse 20 of Galatians, if you're following the app or you're seeing it on the screen, just follow with me. It says, if you have given your life to Jesus, Jesus has given himself to you. He has made your heart his home. Now listen, when Jesus moves in, he brings the whole load. He's not, he's not coming and hanging out for a while and leaving, all right? Like, like Julie, one of our 20-somethings, like she came home this weekend, but guess what? She's leaving. She's out of here. She can only take so much of, hey, would you take the trash out kind of stuff going on. I mean, she comes and mooches our food, and she mooches off of our, like she, 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 she's just a moocher, aren't you, Jules? Yeah, and then in a little while, she's going to leave. And you know what else? She's going to go home and think, dear God, I can't believe I lived that way all those years. I'm alone now. This is awesome. You know what? Jesus never leaves. He comes, he hangs out. He does the whole deal, laundry with us, the whole thing. You, you get the full meal deal. You get everything. You don't get part of it. I mean, this lady in Ireland, I mean, she had tapped into the power source, but she, just, she, didn't, she didn't leave it on. I mean, there comes a time, I think, when all of us need to take a look and say, how can I live in the fullness of God? How do I live in such a way that these type of qualities, in such a way and knowing that, wait a minute, legally I'm good, relationally I'm good, inherently I'm good, then how come I don't live that way? How come I don't live like that day after day? Where, where am I missing the joy? Where am I missing the fun and the excitement that all these things ought to be bringing me? And I look at this and I say, you know, I think Paul has hit on something in the the second chapter of Colossians on this one world called legalism. All right, now legalism, as you know, is somebody who has laws. They have lists. don't Don't you know people that have lists? And if you don't follow that list, you must be really bad. Right, I mean, you know, just if you don't if you don't think they, the way they do, if you don't follow what they th- what they think, then you must be awful. Okay, so that'd be a legalist. Let me give, let me give you a handful of things that I believe legalism does in our life. Number one, I want to start with this concept that we tend to think everybody else is a legalist, not us. Have you ever noticed? You know why we do that? Because we we compare ourselves to other people. So as long as we can find somebody's worse than us, we're a legalist. Like, give me an example, all right? In a church like ours, okay? You got some people who'd say, hey, man, we, we ought to be singing hymns. We ought to have hymn books. We ought to have, uh, have a choir. We ought to have an organ. We ought to have, we ought to have choir robes. We, we, we ought to do that. And if you don't do that, man, you're not doing church. So, you know, hipsters get up here and sing and say, well, you're a legalist, all right? But, but then a hipster church, getting all hip and cool, would say, hey, man, you mean we, don't, we don't do the hymns and things because we don't believe they're relevant. And then, you know what? They're legalists too. So, so if you think, man, I got to wear a three-piece, if you, don't wear, if you don't dress up and go to church, then you're not honoring God. And then the guy like me who wears jeans to church would say, well, I'll tell you what, I'm not doing that because I think you're a legalist and I'm a legalist. Have you ever noticed we're all a legalist some way? Because we always look at somebody else and say, ooh, look at them. I mean, it just breeds legalism. You know what I've noticed? Number two, legalism's contagious. You take anybody and get negative long enough, here's how you can prove this. Go on Facebook. Sometime this afternoon, you'll find somebody either in this church or in your friend circle who's just ranting about something, right? I mean, seriously, don't you see folks who just go crazy on Facebook? I mean, like just bat crazy about stuff and they just go off on something. And before long, like the string is like 40 comments and 500 likes. And, and before like, you get like the 20th comment, you forgot what the original rant was because they're just at it, right? I mean, you ever see those ones where they just rant like at Joel Osteen? 
I mean, right, really? I mean, like you find like a super right-wing fundamentalist like, Joel Osteen's going to hell, you know? And then it's like, wham, let's just kill him, right? You know, or then, or then my, the latest one is let's go kill Rob Bell. Rob Bell's a heretic, Arr! right? And you know, listen, if, if there were enough people who cared enough what I thought, you know, somebody's like, Chuck Allen, can't believe, Arr! you know, and some of you do. You know, but I, I mean, really, when we do all that, are we doing anything that's helping the world? Because I mean, what we're doing is we jump on this negative bandwagon, and let's just let's just have let's just have a legalist fight. You know what else I know about legalism? It'll take a vibrant faith, and it'll make it dull. It'll take a faith that once was really, really unbelievable, and you layer it with enough rules, before long, nobody can succeed. I lived in a home where my dad had so many rules. Dude, I'm, Mother Teresa couldn't have succeeded. I mean, seriously, I mean, my dad had so many rules because if you didn't do it that way, then really you must not love Jesus. You know, it's like all of a sudden, I didn't realize I was like in my 40s when I thought, wait a minute, Jesus is enough. The rules are just silly. Legalism, it'll, it'll rob you of the joy. You know what else I've realized? You know what legalism does? It makes us self-righteous, judgmental people. Legalism makes us look down our nose at somebody else and always find somebody that's worse than me. Golly, I am so good at that. I mean, seriously, you know, just they don't do it like that. I can't believe it. You know, it just makes it, it's, it's awful. It takes this, this, part of us where Jesus says, wait a minute, I want to rule on your heart. Remember, I moved into your home. That doesn't sound like me. Did it, did it ever occur to you that the one group of people that Jesus had the stern, most stern remarks for were the most religious elite? The more religious you were, the more Jesus freaked you out. You know what else I've noticed? So it makes us narrow and it makes us divisive. It causes us to just break into factions. You ever wondered why we have so many different Baptists and so many different Methodists and so many different Episcopalians and so many Catholics? And wait, don't you, I mean, someday for all those folks who have claimed Jesus is Lord, we're gonna show up in heaven. And I really think there's gonna be this like huge symposium somewhere in glory. And the Lord's gonna look at it and say, why did y'all put a name on all your stuff? What was up with that? You know why? Because Baptists believe they're right, and Methodists believe they're right, and Catholics believe they're right. And Jesus comes along and says, wait a minute, there's only one right, it's me. Why don't you take all that junk off? You know what else I've realized? Legalism, legalism makes it impossible for people to see Jesus for who he is. It makes it impossible. You cannot see Jesus when all you see is rules. Because you see, legalism really is this. Now watch this, here's my Bible, right? So if I start putting pages of rules on top of my Bible and it's just a stack and I just pound it away with rules, if you gotta do this, you know what happens? All I ever see are the rules. I never see the Bible. All I see are the rules, I never see Jesus. All I ever see is me, never him. Can you imagine a world filled with nothing but Chuck? We would be at war every day. It would be a disaster. Could I just kind of lovingly say that's probably true of you too? Because we, we missed the big deal. 
You say, well, Chuck, I don't, I don't want to live that way. What do I have to do? Well, let me give you two quick thoughts, right? Number one, first, remember your legal standing. Re- remember that what Jesus has done for you. Number two, don't, don't fall prey to legalism. By the way, the number one way I would ever say, that, you know how you're going to beat legalism? Every day determine I'm going to find the good that Christ lives in me. Listen, the only good that lives within me is Jesus. When I purposely seek that and find that and decide I want to display that, I defeat legalism. Every time. Every time. But I want to give you this thought. Let's remember our legal standing. Jesus said in in John chapter 8, verse 36, so if the Son sets you free, you will be what? Free indeed. So out of Colossians chapter 2, we have this picture of how we're supposed to do this and enjoy this. So number one, I want you to see in, in Colossians chapter 2, we are complete. I mean, in all that legal standing and all of our relationships and, and, and all of the inherent changes in our DNA, to fight all that legalism, how do, we, how do we know we can do it? Well, because we're complete. In the fullness of Christ, we get the whole meal of God. Listen to what he says in verse 9 of chapter 2. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you've been given fullness in Christ who is, in the head, who is the head over every power and authority. Now, the phrase in Christ shows us that Jesus is the center of God's saving activity. So literally, what, what, what Paul is teaching you and I is that in Christ, when we step in Christ, when we receive the fullness of God, we have everything we need, not only to defeat legalism, but to recognize we have legally been saved by the power of Christ, that our relationships can be right because our relationship is right with Christ, and we ought to be inherently different because our nature has changed, and it's not about rules, it's about Christ at work in us. And so you see that, number one, we're complete. You see, when I see that, I recognize that not only does the fullness of God dwell in Jesus, every believer is filled with the fullness of Jesus. Are you with me? And so you see, when we say yes to Christ, remember what I, I showed last week, that to be in Christ is literally step into a relationship with him. It's like you're walking into this presence that absorbs us and literally kind of soaks us all the way to the bone of the core of our soul. And Jesus takes over our life. And in that fullness, we're complete. But secondly, we're also alive. I mean, that's a good thing. We're alive. Look at uh, verse 11. It establishes some parallels between this weird thing that the Old Testament had about circumcision and a new life in Christ. Look, look with me in verse 11. In him, again, talking about Jesus, you were also circumcised in the putting off of the natural nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but by the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead when you were dead in your sins and in your uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. Now, in the Old Testament, what happened was there was a rule that if you were a good Jewish boy, then what happened? You became a follower of Christ and you were circumcised. All right. Now, Paul isn't saying that this is about circumcision. What he's saying is this, that the church in Colossae was saying that you can't be a follower of Jesus unless you do that. And all the men in the room went... Because you see, what he's really saying here is this. Anytime you put something on top of Jesus, you've made it, watch this, extra biblical. 
He's saying, listen, Jesus is enough. You don't have to follow all those rules and regulations anymore. Jesus came along and said, this is what matters. Love God with all your heart, your mind, your soul. Love others the way you love yourself. Bingo, done. Do those two, you got it. And anything you layer on top of that, you've messed up. So they were saying, okay, if you become a new follower of Jesus, this is what you have to do. And Paul is saying, man, you've missed the whole point. You don't have to do anything because he's done it all for you. You just receive it. Let him let you recognize legally he's made me his kid. Relationally, I am right with God. As a result, my nature ought to change from the inside out, but not because of somebody's rules, but because of God working inside my life. And so when Christ died, our old nature died with him. That's what Paul's talking about, spiritual circumcision, right? So it's kind of like baptism when he introduces baptism. Like just a little while ago when little Caleb says at 10 years old, listen, I want to identify with Jesus. What did I say? Buried with Christ in baptism. That's the identifying with him, raised to walk in newness of life. Now, I talked with Caleb before service, and he went through uh, Miss Amy's uh, new ch- children's new Christians class, and Caleb knew. When I asked him, man, does baptism make you saved? No, sir. Well, what makes you saved? Jesus. That's right. Well, then why do you get baptized? Well, I get baptized to show people that I'm a follower of Jesus. It doesn't make me a follower of Jesus. It shows people I am, right? That's what Paul's talking about. He's saying, man, listen, identify with Jesus, but take away anything that keeps you from being changed by Jesus. But now watch this. Also, recognize our sins are canceled. I mean, they're wiped away. Look in verse 13. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. Literally saying, Jesus died on the cross to take away all your junk. And you say, well, Chuck, there's got to be more to it. Let's see, the church at Colossae was trying to say, there's got to be more to it. You know what Paul's saying? No, there's not. It's just that. Jesus died on the cross. You accept that, you're good. But see, finally, I want you to see you also got victory. I mean, you got victory. I mean, we've got completeness in Jesus. We have a new life. We have completely been forgiven. Our legal standing involves one more thing. We won. I mean, isn't this good? Victory is ours. Verse 15 says this, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he, meaning Jesus, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now, this word disarmed literally means to be stripped. It's like, a, it's like a, 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 an army that's been defeated and you're marching them away and you're taking all, of the, all their weapons away. What he's saying is everything that you think holds you, it's like that song that Lee was talking about, you know, every chain. You see, you can't break your chains, he breaks them for you. You can't get rid of your chains, he gets rid of them for you. Literally what happens here is he's saying, I've, I took all that stuff that's heaped on you in guilt. And he said, stop, guilt isn't from me. I take all that away, I nailed it on the cross and I left it there, signed, sealed and delivered, done. You see, Jesus is the victor and he triumphed at the cross. We're complete, we're alive, we're forgiven, we've got victory. But now, let me finish this up because in in verse 16, it says this. It says, man, make sure you don't measure people by the outside. Don't, Don't just refuse to judge people from the external perspective. In verse 16, it says, therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. What he's saying is, see, the Jewish people celebrated everything, dude. I mean, they had a party for everything. 
mean, they had feasts, they had festivals, they had rules of what you could eat, what you could drink, when you could eat it, when you could drink it. I mean, they had the whole deal, when you could make up your bed, when you couldn't. And, and what Paul's saying is all that stuff, it's over, it's done. Stop doing all that silliness because that foreshadowed when Jesus came, it would all be done. And he's saying, Jesus came, he gave you life, accept that, be done. Stop with all that silliness. Stop trying to follow everybody's rules. You don't need a church. You just need Jesus. You don't need a preacher. You just need Jesus. But then he goes on in verse 18. He says, man, you better reject false authority. Make sure, make sure you don't fall prey to thinking that following rules are living for God. He says, do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you from the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He's lost connection with, with the head from whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments grows as God causes it to grow. Now the word disqualify literally means to declare unworthy of a prize. What he's saying is show me somebody who tells you to do something other than just Jesus and I'll say don't follow that dude show me somebody who teaches something other than just Jesus don't follow that dude what he's saying is listen don't fall don't fall prey to rules when somebody says to you man if you really love Jesus you'll cut your hair this way what he's saying is don't fall prey to that if if it's a man if you if you love Jesus you dress a certain way don't fall prey to that he said don't 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 let that happen and then he, he finishes down in verse 20, and he says, man, run away from religion. Run away from religion and their rules. I mean, I, isn't this fascinating? Like, I find people all the time who will say, well, you know, preacher, I'm not really a religious person. And I think, oh, thank God. I can hang out with you. And he's saying, man, don't fall prey to that. Listen to what he says in verse 20. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. I mean, he's kind of mocking you, like, bah, 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 right? And then he says, these are all destined to perish with use because they're based on human commands and teachings. And such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom. I mean, they look like they're the things you're supposed to do with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in, in restraining sensual indulgement. Paul tells us that you're not gonna get to heaven by following a list of do's and don'ts because you can't do, Jesus has already done. So you, you find somebody who says, well, listen, man, that guy, he must love God. Look how much he gives. Paul says, man, that had nothing to do with it. Well, look at that guy. Look at how he dresses when he comes to church. He must really love Jesus. It had nothing to do with it. Well, well look how often that, that family comes. They must really love Jesus. It had nothing to do with it. He's saying, Jesus did all that you need done and don't fall prey to it. You see, once grace is understood and embraced, it leads to commitment. Rules are like religious training wheels. I mean, you remember when you were a kid and your dad put training wheels on your bike? I mean, I think they're one of the dumbest things ever. I mean, let the kid fall, it'll be all right. I mean, really, you know, I mean, what's a skin knee? You're gonna go to mama anyway, right? I mean, they're there to keep us from tipping over, but they're also confining us because they keep us from breaking free. You see, being a follower of Jesus isn't a matter of what you do or don't. It's just what Jesus has done for you. My buddy Rusty's here somewhere. Where are you at, bud? Yeah, there you are. He was out of town on business this week and he called me. He said, man, I know you're busy, but I can't get there. Could you, could you go see my buddy? 
his wife's in a hospice unit in Winder. So I drove over Thursday evening and I walked in this room and uh, I don't know if you've ever been in a hospice room or not, but you can literally feel death. I mean, it's just hanging in the room. And his buddy, who happened to also be named Chuck, was sitting there and he, he walked up and shook my hand. And his, his sweetheart was laying in the bed, having been told she's got about two weeks to live. Mid 50 ish. She got a couple of her daughters there and a son in law there. And I said, well, I, I wanted to come by. And they said, yeah, Rusty told us about your church and you. And you know, they were being sweet and kind. And, and I said, well, I'm, I, I want to come by and pray with you guys. And I, I looked over it at her. And I said, uh, are you afraid to die? Big old tears started welling up her eyes. And she said, yeah, I really am. I looked over at Chuck and I said, Chuck, how about you? I don't know that I've ever pictured that big old redneck tearing up, but he did. I looked over at her daughters and they were, and I said, you know what? Would y'all let me tell you a story? Yeah. I said, you know, the story is that God made you and me. When he did, man, he wanted us to be his kids so bad. And somewhere in our life, man, we just all made some bad decisions and kind of broke God's heart. All of them are nodding. I said, man, you guys ever do anything like that? Yeah. I said, but you know, the great thing about God is that no matter what, he loves you. And you see in his perfection and in our mess up, man, we, we, we couldn't be with God in heaven because he's perfect and we're messed up. So he looked at us and he said, but I love you so much that I'm gonna send my son, Jesus, and I'm gonna allow him to live a perfect, sinless life. And then he's gonna die and shed his blood and have a spear poked in his side nails driven in his hands and his feet and a crown of thorns pushed down on his head and he's going to die a cruel and painful and horrific death not because he did anything wrong but because we did and then God allowed his son to be buried in a tomb and three days later he stood up and shook off his burial cloth and pushed the stone away from in front of that tomb. And he made a home in heaven for every person who would call on the name of the Lord. I reached down and I held that sweet lady's hand and I said, do you want that today? And with that little broken voice with that oxygen going in her nose, she said, yes, I do. And I looked at her daughters and I looked at Chuck and I looked at the son-in-law and I said, do you guys want that? And they said, yeah. And I said, then let's hold hands. And 
I said, I don't have a magic prayer, but I'm telling you, I've got a Jesus who wants to love you and give you life and have it for eternity right now. So just ask him for that. I could tell, man, they're looking at me like, dude, I do not know what to do. I said, tell you what, how about if I pray out loud? If you want to do that, you can just pray it with me. How about that? And they said, yeah. So I said, dear Jesus, the whole room, man, dear Jesus, please forgive me of all my messed up stuff. Please forgive me all my messed up stuff. Come live in my life and make me new. Thanks for dying for me. Thanks for raising for me. Whether I have two weeks or I have 20 years, God, I want want to turn around and live for you. We said amen, and I looked over that sweet lady, and I said, sweetie, no matter how long you live, if God chooses to heal you with medication, if God chooses to heal you instantaneously, or if God takes you home in two weeks, where are you going? And she looked at me as sure as if I were standing in that room, and she said, I'm going to heaven. Listen to me. She didn't need the church. She didn't need a preacher. She didn't need somebody with a book of rules. She didn't need to tell her somebody to stop smoking, to stop drinking, stop listening to rock and roll, stop dipping, stop chewing, stop cussing. She didn't need any of that junk. She needed Jesus. And I don't know what deathbed you lie on today, but I am telling you as sure as I told her, you don't need anything but Jesus. He is all you need. So today, like they did, pray with me. Lord Jesus, there are people here today who want to call on the name of the Lord, receive the fullness of God and walk in the certainty of heaven. God, give them the courage to just call on you right now. God, count me in on that. I want that. God, I'm calling on the name of the Lord. I don't know all the words to say. I don't know all the preacher stuff to talk about, but I need you, Jesus. God, hear their prayer and do what you promised and answer their prayer. And let us live in the fullness of all you offer in Jesus, which is everything. And we pray that in the matchless name of Jesus, our Lord, our King, and our Savior. Amen, amen, and amen. Thanks for listening to the Sugar Hill Church Podcast. For more information and to find out more about our church, please visit us at sugarhillchurch.com.